You are listening to The Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. Albert Breer, senior NFL reporter for the Monday Morning Quarterback, joining us on the program. All right. Your unbiased perch last night watching this game with the taunting call. What did you make of that, Albert? I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous the way they're calling these. Um, you know, I could Cassius Marsh have done a little bit more to prevent that situation for himself. I mean, the, the flying leg kick and then just sort of stare down on the other sideline. I mean, you know, like I, I think if you're, um, you're Matt Nagy today, you're probably telling your players in a teaching point, like, I don't agree with the rule, but like, if they're calling this just, you know, if you're going to celebrate, don't make eye contact with anybody on the opponent. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, you know, I do, I think Cassius Marsh did everything he could to avoid it. No, but like you add it to kind of the, the hip check there, which I'm sure you've seen that, um, and everything else. It just like, it just feels like this is not being consistently enforced across the league. And it feels like, and I like, look, going into the season, Dan, I really thought like, this is going to take them two, three, four weeks to, to work it out and to figure out where that line is. And here we are, and it's week nine, and it still feels like people don't have a full understanding of what's going to get called and what isn't going to get called. Okay, but it felt like Tony Carrenti, the official, yeah. initiated some contact here. with. No, it did. And plus, he doesn't throw the flag where there is an obvious taunt, but then mm-hmm. he throws it like right after they, you know, nudge into one another. Like now There's I'm retaliation. Throw. Yes. Yeah. I it felt like he missed the taunting penalty and then almost waited and then threw the flag after, you know, they they made contact with one another. Yeah, and if you're the league, the last thing you can do is have the the uh, have the idea out there that your officials are engaging in anything that becomes in any way personal at all with any player or coach, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're supposed to be the ones that are out there that are not emotional, that are looking at the game from a down the middle perspective and aren't letting anything anybody says get to them. And yeah, I mean, it, I don't know if there was some sort of altercation between Marsh and the official and Tony earlier in the game. Um, or if like just Tony got his backup about like the flying leg kick and stare down, but like, it did feel like there was something personal there. Cause it absolutely looked intentional. And, um, look, the league's had a lot of problems with officiating in the last couple of years. Um, you know, and, and I think that there's a little bit more to Al Riveron, you know, winding up out than, than met the eye. And, um, it just, it, it feels to me like this is something they can't just let it go. You know, when does the NFL well, respond today? Like they don't always respond right away, um, but they might get it out there. The way the NFL would respond in a situation like this normally, if it were a player, right, is they would say, we're looking into it, right? (laughs) Like, so they would at least get it out there and let the public know this is something we're not like just brushing over. We're looking into it. And then usually with the players, the way it works is that by the end of the week, they've sent the FedEx out to the guy and that at that point, the news gets out of whatever happened to the player or coach, whoever was involved in it. And so, like, you would think that it would probably be the same process here where the NFL gets something out on Tony Correnti, say, we're looking into this and we're talking to him about this. Um, And then if there was going to be any sort of sanctions, I think they'd probably be later in the week after they talk to everybody. What happens to Mac Jones after the uh, shoestring tackle? (laughs) um, Leg twist. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know what's funny is, like, he comes off as – 
like he almost comes off as like Opie in his press conferences, you know what I mean? Like when you hear him talk publicly and he just seems like you're uh, like, I don't know any better way to put it. than like, he kind of like sounds like he's stoned when he talks, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and so he seems very kind of like passive, but you hear all these legendary stories about how competitive he is. Right. Like, and um, you know, I remember talking to some scouts in the spring about how, um, you know, the Alabama people would tell him he would get into it with Nick Saban when he was running the scout team and like yell, like trash talk Nick Saban about the way his defense was playing against <laughs> Mac, who was to his backup at the time. Um, and so I think that this is probably like a combination of Mac not knowing exactly what had happened because he had just gotten hit there and probably being a little bit overly competitive in the moment. That said, the fact that the defensive player was injured on this play, right? And the fact that he suffered an ankle injury, I think the NFL has to look at this and say, if the roles were reversed and a quarterback got hurt in a play like this, what would happen, yeah. right? Um, that's why I think they've got a problem on their hands. And that's why I think they probably have to find Mac Jones because that would be a legal play. That would be a legal play if Brian Burns had the ball in his hands, but he didn't. And the twist at the end, I think you could certainly say Mac had enough time there while he was on the ground to figure out seeing people running past him that Brian Burns probably didn't have the ball. Odell Beckham Jr., does he find out where he's going today? I don't think he gets claimed today. Um, and I could be wrong about that, but you know, for another team to claim him at this point, um, it's $7.25 million. They have a settlement agreement with the Browns where He'll, um, you know, like he gets termination pay. I don't get in the weeds in it, but he gives $3 million back to the Browns if, um, you know, if he winds up clearing waivers. Um, I think he probably will not get claimed. I mean, there are a couple teams in there um, that are on that list that have enough money to claim them that are sort of interesting to me. Um, the one that you really look at is Seattle, just because Pete Carroll's already addressed it publicly. Um, you know, they've tried to show Russell Wilson, like we're all in for you to, to, to make it happen with you right now. And I think the Seahawks have to reckon with the possibility too, that this might be it for them with Russell Wilson, right? Like, and so if this is it for them with Russell Wilson, what's the harm in going and, you know, burning the cap space that you have on a player that's going to you know be his best. And so, you know, then you kind of create a situation where it's like, okay, like we're making one great run with Russell Wilson here. And maybe there's a long-term benefit where if you wind up making a real run, you know, he's convinced that he wants to stay there longer than just the rest of this year. Okay, explain this to me, that Odell Beckham Jr. is not good for the Browns, but Odell Beckham Jr. is good for Seattle. I think it has everything to do with the power of the quarterback, okay? And I, I know the Browns firmly believe this. I believe it too. Baker Mayfield got better last year after Odell went down. And Baker Mayfield playing really well on Sunday against the Bengals, they don't view that as a as as a as an accident either. Like Baker Mayfield's at his best when he can go out there and play point guard, right? And it, like when he can go out there and see the field and you and, and all five guys are live in the route and he doesn't have to look over every three or four plays to make sure that Odell Beckham's not losing his mind because he's not getting the ball. And that's bad for a young quarterback, yeah, right? But why like, is Russell Wilson going to be better for Odell Beckham? Because it's, it's the same thing as Tom Brady with Randy Moss. Like that was the problem with Randy Moss earlier in his career with young quarterbacks, right? Then he got to New England and the quarterback was a bigger star than he is. Okay. And the quarterback being a bigger star than he is, I think made a, made a big difference because now it's like, I like Randy Moss could legitimately go into New England and say, I know this guy knows more than me. 
I know this guy has been to the mountaintop. This guy's a bigger star than I am. So in this situation, it's on me to fit in with him, not the other way around. And I think Russell Wilson probably has that sort of like that has that sort of like, I guess leverage is the right word in a relationship with his receivers. Whereas a Baker Mayfield doesn't, you know, a Baker Mayfield, if Odell's not getting the ball and he's not happy, he's not going to point the finger at himself. If that happens with Russell Wilson, I think the dynamic is completely different. And that's why I think like, you know, you even look at like when the Patriots got rid of Randy Moss, that was why, because it had sort of reverted to that. And that, that, I think that's what every team that's considering signing him or claiming him has to take into account is what sort of effect it's going to have on your quarterback and whether or not your quarterback has the power to leverage the right, the right sort of attitude out of Odell Beckham. How does Aaron Rodgers play against Seattle this weekend? I think he's like at his best when he's like in FU mode, right? Like, and I think like, I mean, he, no, but how does he get to the point where he's allowed to play? Not how does he play? Do you think he's playing against Seattle? I do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and look, like, like I will say this, I, I mean, 100%, like this is like, if he has symptoms, whatever, I don't know about that. Right. Like that's possible that, you know, like the timing doesn't work. Like he has another positive test, whatever. Right. Like, so he's got to get through the protocols first, but I think if he clears on Saturday, then I think he's going to play. And just having talked to Packers coaches about this over the last few days, I, I can tell you unequivocally, if they, one of them said to me, if there's anyone in the league who can play without practicing during the week, it's Aaron Rodgers. And so, you know, they're going to get Aaron Rodgers ready to play, um, you know, over the next few days. And I think where this would have gotten interesting, Dan, is if Jordan Love had played really well against the Chiefs, maybe organizationally then they might say, let's get a second look at him. You know, if they win that game, maybe they have a little more breathing room now. Let's take another look at what Jordan Love looks like out here. We can gather some valuable information and we can give Aaron the benefit of another week off. Mm. But I think based on the way Jordan the way Jordan Love played now, like kind of the urgency of the situation the Packers are facing, they're going to do everything they can to get him ready. I think he's going to start on Sunday so long as he clears the protocols. Uh, does this affect his status long-term with the Packers, in your opinion? I think yes. Um, their handling of this situation is going to be really important. Now, the league's investigating this, right? So they're requesting all the video, and they're, like, trying to gather every piece of, like, every piece of information they can about the way this went over the last three months. I think, you know, one of the one of the interesting pieces of this is the press conference piece of it where like the Packers, if you look at the way they handle the press conferences, right, you can tell what happened there. Like you don't need me to tell you they put every other unvaccinated player on Zoom. Every single other unvaccinated player was on Zoom. Only Aaron Rodgers was going to the going to the podium without a, without a mask on. So the Packers can very easily say to the league, we told him. Look, like every other play, every one, every other one of our guys is is up there, right? So, how do they handle this now? Do they fall on the sword and say, "You can talk to Aaron. We've got our players back," or do they say, "Look at the way we handle every other one of our players"? I think that right there, because Aaron takes everything so personally, I think that right there is important because if Aaron feels like he's being thrown under the bus by the by the Packers, all that goodwill over the three last three months, I think goes out the window. If the Packers fall on the sword here, maybe it helps them, right? Mm. Like if the Packers show we have your back, 
like, hey, Aaron, look, we traded for Randall Cobb. We went and got Whitney Merciless and Jalen Smith in the middle of the season. We're, we're acting in a different way. We're winning with you. And now we have your back. When you're in a really kind of tough spot, I think that could end up going a, a, a long way. So I don't think it's like how like the on-field piece goes. I think it's how the NFL investing investigation goes that could really wind up affecting where that relationship is when we get to February and March. Thank you, Albert. Uh, we appreciate your time as always. You got it, Dan. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. Or stream us live on the Peacock app. Talking to Dean Blandino, Fox NFL and college football rules analyst, kind enough to join us. All right, Dean. Um, what do you take away from that play? Yeah, it's certainly, look, this has been a point of emphasis. We've been talking about taunting. I always try to put myself in my old role. Okay, put, put yourself in the, in the position of the official. And, and from where Tony Karenny's standing, he sees Marsh kind of walk toward the bench. Maybe he thinks he's talking to Harvin, the punter, and, and it looks to him like taunting. It's been this point of emphasis, and he's going to throw his flag. Then you get the the hip check, which I have a hard time explaining that. Um, I just think we've gone too far with this. You know, Tony mentioned in his, in his pool report that he was posturing. Look, he, to me, it looked like Marsh, maybe, maybe he might've said something. I mean, he's, he's 30 yards away. This isn't right at the bench area where he's jawing, getting up in somebody's face. I'd love to see more of him in somebody's face, especially in that situation where you're basically it's a first down for the Steelers. That that's a tough one. And then you get the the contact at the end, which is which is really difficult to explain. Do you think that the official tried to make contact with Cassius Marsh? I, you know, if if you sit here and ask me, do I think he intentionally? I would say no. I would say absolutely under no circumstances is he trying to make make contact with Marsh. But you watch the video, and it certainly looks like that way. I'm not in Tony's head. I don't know. I would, I'd be shocked if that were the case. Uh, but you watch the video, and I'm not going to sit here and say, some people won't think that. I, I don't think that's the case, but it's tough with the video the way, it, the way it looked. I just didn't understand the timing of it, Dean, because if he did taunt, okay, there was ample time to throw the flag for taunting. Sure. The flag didn't really come out and go into the air until they made contact with each other. Yeah, and, and and Tony was very clear that the contact had nothing to do with the flag. And, you know, but if anything, it was Tony. Maybe he lost his balance. I don't know. It just didn't look good. But, again, he's processing it. He's giving – maybe he's giving Marsh the opportunity. Okay, is he going to keep walking toward the bench area? I'm going to give him a chance to walk away. You know, let it play out. It is a big situation in the game. And, uh, and I guess he felt that it, it crossed the line and, and now he's going to throw the flag and then you get the contact. It just, it's just not a great, it's just not a good deal when we're sitting here talking about something like that, when we should be talking about, like you said, the Steelers, you know, trying to put the bears away, the bears with a, with a great comeback. And we end up having an, an exciting finish. Because you know what would have happened if it was reverse, Dean. Oh, ejection, disqualification out of the game. No question. Yeah. I, I, I know that they're calling this and there's an emphasis for this. What, what was the groundswell that said, we've got to call these, we've got to really emphasize the taunting here? Yeah, and this, is, this has happened before at my time at the NFL. 
This came from the coaches subcommittee, which is a committee that works with the competition committee. It's made up of head coaches. You know, Andy Reid is the is the chair. There's coaches like Brian Flores and Mike Vrabel, who's now Vrabel's going to move to the competition committee next year. And they had 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 voiced some concern about the sportsmanship and, and a and a kind of a lack of sportsmanship and more of the in-your-face taunting type stuff that wasn't getting called. And so I can understand that. If you feel like there's actions that are not being called that are fouls by, by definition in the rule book, and we want to clean that up, that's great. And, and that's important. And we want to make sure, right, it's, it's player safety, number one, sportsmanship, number two, and then competitive equity, number three. But it feels like we've almost gone to a new standard for taunting, that, that, that now it's not, it's, it's not so much cleaning up what we thought we were missing, now it's like anything, anything that could be directed at an opponent posturing, we're, we're getting flags and the flags are up significantly. It's not, it's not like we have four or five flags a game. It's still less than one a game, but it just feels like the standard has changed. And I'm not sure if the competition committee is comfortable with that, great. Then, then they're not going to have to make any adjustments, but I'm not sure if they're going to be comfortable at the end of the year when they look at the whole picture. Yeah, I don't want to put more on the officials' plates. I don't want them to adjudicate, you know, I got to read into what is intent yeah. here. I mean, it's, it's, it's already tough. It's the toughest sport to officiate, and now we've added intent. And I, I, I just think I'm worried that we're going to get to a playoff game, Dean. Like, this is a standalone regular season game. That's why we're talking about it. If this is a wild card game and you had a play like this, a moment like this, you know, that's how rules get changed. But this is, you know, then there's a big deal uh, with, you know, implications, money on it from gambling. You know, there's just, they, I don't know. I, I think yeah. they need to de-emphasize taunting. The officials get together here, halfway point of the regular season, Let's let's hit a reset button here like we've done with holding before or pass interference before where we maybe, you know, we, we slow it. We slow it down a little bit. That's certainly possible. And then the competition competition committee has done that before. Like you mentioned, withholding. We've seen that in previous years. And, and to get to give the officials, I think the officials have been really good over the years in understanding what is taunting and what is just the normal emotion, the normal, the normal kind of back and forth that happens during the game. They've been really good at that. And this feels like, like you said, we've given them another thing on their plate. And now, look, they're being told on training tapes every week, these taunting plays are highlighted. These are calls we need to get, and they're and it's hammered in. So if you have that somebody telling you, "Hey, you got to get these taunting calls," you're going to go out and you're going to look for that stuff. And that's what I feel like is happening to some extent. I feel like the officials are really good when you give them some discretion. Say, "Hey, get the big ones, get the ones that's in your face, the obvious unsportsmanlike stuff, and the other stuff, the emotional stuff." Uh, let's let the game keep, you know, let that continue in the game. Let's not have 15-yard penalties impact games. We're talking to Dean Blandino, Fox NFL and college football rules analyst, but you can see the Steelers defense run 60 yards together collectively down to the end zone, slide into the end zone and take a snapshot. Uh, I can watch Lamar Jackson do a cartwheel into the end zone or a somersault. That's not taunting. I know. And this is, and this has been, I remember talking to to coaches, Bill Belichick, and he had the same thing. He said, we're letting everybody run into the end zone and doing these celebrations and then we're going to ask the the players on the other side to kind of temper their emotions. And it's it's kind of you can't have it both ways. 
And again, the emotion is good. You don't, the league is so cognizant of not, they do not like, there are people in, at 345 Park that do not like when they are called the no fun league. They don't like it. And so they're trying to allow the celebrations, allow some of that emotion. And now you turn around and you get a play like this or, or an emphasis like this that seems to be trying to, to, to keep the emotions in check. It's tough. It's tough when you tell players one thing in one area and then in another area, hey, you got to turn around and just walk away. Don't do anything that's going to give the official an opportunity to throw the flag. How often do officials get together at halftime and maybe – stress, overemphasize, or de-emphasize something that's happened in a game? Oh, yeah. Halftime is for the officials is no different than the, than the players, the coaches, right? You make halftime adjustments as a coach, you know, with the players. Officials will do that. They'll talk about how, what's the tenor of the first half, right? Is the game getting out of control? You know, is the game under control? Are we doing, you know, nothing really we have to adjust. So, so they'll have that conversation at halftime. Not that we're going to we're going to change how we officiate the game and the standard, right? That should be consistent. But certainly if certain things have happened in the first half that we need to be careful about, we need to adjust to, they're going to have that conversation during halftime. And, uh, you know, so they can go out in the second half and make sure that everything stays, you know, stays under control. NFL do anything today? I, I don't know. You know, for me, I, again, I think about myself in the same in my old spot. And I would have had a long conversation with Tony Carney last night about that game. And that's never good. And, and so they're going to review everything. They're going to go through it. I don't know what, you know, what's going to come out of that. I don't know if there's any further discipline or anything else from the game. But if you Obviously, were in your old spot, Dean, and you're having yeah. a conversation with Tony Carrenti after last night's game, what yeah. would you want to know? I'd want to know, hey, and this, and I know, I've known Tony Crenny a long time, and he's a great man. He's been a great official for a long time. I go, Tony, what the heck happened on that Tony? Why, what did, what, why did you bump the player? What happened? Talk to me. Tell me what happened. I want to hear his perspective, right? Because I don't think he did it intentionally, but what happened? What was going through your mind? What was the thought process? You know, why did you throw the flag? How did that all play out? Let's talk about the, the low block that you called earlier in the game. Let's talk about any other issues you know, any issues with the coaches, we're just going to go through it because I wouldn't want to make any decisions on anything at, before talking to him, talking to the crew and getting their perspective, because this is a hard, right? It's a hard job. Like you said, it's, it's, this is one of the toughest professions in, in, in not just sports and, and the evaluation, the, the scrutiny that they're under, it's so intense. And, uh, and look, sometimes we mess it up. Sometimes we screwed up. I screwed up when I was at the league office um, but there's a lot riding on these games and you want to have, you want to make sure that, that those, you know, you limit those, those times when there are, when there are mess ups. Ever have a head coach call you to complain about an official? Yeah. Oh, all the time. I had a head coach call me on Monday to complain about an official and I'm no longer at the league office. So it's, uh, that happens all the time. And, and look, they're, Coaches, head coaches understand for the most part, they understand officials are going to make mistakes, right? They know coaches make mistakes, players make mistakes, officials make mistakes. What they don't tolerate, what they don't want is when it's poor communication, right? If I can't get, if I'm on the sideline, I can't get an answer from an official or a referee about something. If the communication is terse or, or it's, it's, it's disrespectful or anything like that, that's when coaches have a problem. And, and that's when it, it becomes about one official. It's not this official missed a hold. 
that's going to happen. It's this official isn't communicating with me. This official didn't didn't give me the opportunity to uh, you know understand what was going on, and that happens quite a bit when coaches have that you know have that conversation. Do you think Ed Hockley will get enough credit for his arms and how Jack they were, and the fact that he had you know his his outfit enhanced that? I mean, he's the godfather of the uh, party pump before a game. He he is, and and that and I hope that's not Ed's legacy because I think as we talk about communication, Ed was excellent at communicating. There were referees over the years, Johnny Greer, Gene Steratore comes to mind, Ed Hockley that communicated with coaches. I never had an issue with a coach telling me that Ed Hockley didn't communicate. They might have said. He's, you know, asked about his tailor and, and if his tailor needed glasses because of the, you know, the way the shirt was was cut. But but Ed was great from a communication standpoint, and he really did a nice job in that area. Well, nobody cares about communicating. His legacy is the guns, and you know that, Dean. We're seeing that at all levels now. The college officials oh, I now know. have the Ed cut going. <laughs> you see, watch some of these games. I think there should be testing. I'm just saying that, uh, I know. I you know, know. The, no accusations, but just the eye test here, Dean. <laughs> see some guys a little bit jacked up here. Uh, hey, thanks for joining us on short notice. Great to talk to you again, bud. You got it, Dan. Thanks. Thank you. That's Dean Blandino, Fox NFL and college football rules analyst. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, to nine Pacific on Fox Sports Radio, and you can find us on the iHeartRadio app at FSR or stream us live on the Peacock app. I'm George Reister, host of the Reister or Wrong podcast. This is the intersection where sports, business, society, and pop culture meet the truth. Absolute fire on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Facts only. Make sure you check your feelings at the door because no BS is allowed. We keep it 100. This is where real conversations happen. Listen to the Right or Wrong podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We say good morning. Good morning. To Grant Hill, seven-time NBA All-Star, works for Turner Sports, covering the NBA and the NCAA, two-time NCAA champ at Duke. Grant, how are you today, bud? Hey, Dan, I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. The story you'll tell about Mike Krzyzewski to your grandkids is what? (laughs) He had a difficult last name to spell. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, forgive me. It took me till my junior year to learn how to spell it. No, I'm, I, just, just, uh, you know, just an incredible coach. Obviously, one of the great coaches in. Uh, in the but is there of, one a story where you got yelled at, or that that he started crying, or something that stands out? You don't want to say to your grandkids, "He was a great coach." You got, hey, you will not believe this. Here's the story. Yeah, I mean, look, I got yelled at frequently, particularly early on, um, you know, during my time there. I, you know, I, I think Coach K set the tone for me in my four years there at Duke in our very first meeting my freshman year. First day of school, first time the entire team uh, assembles together, and he established the vision for that team in that year uh, by putting the national champions on the board in the locker room. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking around the, the locker room and I'm like, like this team's not good enough to beat UNLV. <laughs> That's the first thing going through my mind. I mean, the team had lost three 
three seniors from a championship or from a from a team the, the year before. You had a young roster. Vegas was so dominant in the finals against Duke the year before, returned everybody. Uh, but Coach K said it in a way that by the end of that conversation, I believe, and I think all of us in that locker room believed. Now, we didn't believe we were championship material at that moment, but if we followed his plan, if we bought in, if we played for one another, you know, if we embodied what Duke basketball is all about, uh, that when it's all said and done, we'd have a chance to, to, to be champions, and we were. And uh, so his ability to sell, his ability to get you to buy in is really his genius, Dan. And it's a farewell tour. Uh, it's going to be strange. I, I don't know how it's going to be for you. You know, you tune in and watch Duke basketball and, you know, you're watching Coach K. But uh, John Shire taking over and uh, it'll be interesting. Interesting to see. It'll be very interesting. Uh, I, you know, obviously a lot of fanfare, farewell tour. I mean, everywhere he goes, it'll be the last time. Last time in Charlottesville, last time at Clemson, last time, uh, you know, going to, to, to Carolina. And what's crazy is I would imagine some of these schools might even celebrate him or <laughs> honor him in some form or fashion. Can you imagine him getting honored in Chapel Hill? Oh, they're, they're absolutely going to honor him. They're going to be glad he's gone. <laughs> right? You you might be right about that. You might be right Even about that. Even in Carolina, probably so. We spent a lot of time talking about the Steelers game with the Bears last night. And yeah, I know you got a, a football background with your father, but it's just these run-ins you have with officials. Like how many times would you feel like something was personal with an official or he was trying to get you or didn't like you? How often would that happen? You know, it, it, it didn't happen much. I mean, you know, you go back in the 90s in the NBA, you know, the officials, you could talk to them. You know, you could, you could have a discussion with them. You know, there was a respect they commanded. Uh, yeah, they, you know, you didn't always see eye to eye. Sometimes you got technicals. But, um, you know, I, I think we've moved away from that in some respects in all sports, not just in the NBA, but in NFL and uh, in various sports. And I think because of the TV coverage and, uh, the banter back and forth, the, the interactions, they've tried to limit that. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, players need to be able to discuss things with, with officials and in the moment, the heat of the battle. Uh, we've changed the rules significantly. Uh, but back in the day, yeah, look, I mean, you know, there were times where, you know, I, I messed up. I, I was wrong. I shouldn't have yelled at you. I've, I've even been tossed. I'm not proud of that uh, back in the day. But, you know, it, it certainly seems like we've changed and we, we don't permit the interaction between players and officials and the rules sometimes can be very, very rigid. And certainly that was, you know, on display last night in that football game, which was very controversial down the stretch. I wonder how your career would have turned out if you were going to Duke now and you were a one and done, because you probably would have been a one and done coach K would have said, you know, what are you doing? Get out of here. How do you think your career would have been if you'd gone in as a freshman instead of after your senior year? a great question um you know i i don't think i would have been as connected to to duke and maybe just you know you know college basketball uh like, like you know like i am now i think you know the four years that we played in the early 90s whether you liked duke or you despised duke you know you saw duke and, and people i think recall and remember those and still 25 30 years later there's still documentaries and books and and still, you know, still in people's, you know, uh, memories of those teams and those years. 
And it's hard to sort of capture that just in one year, I think, for some of these guys. Now, I think with the new name, image, and likeness, I would have relied less on Janet and Calvin uh, as a freshman. Uh, that's for sure. I would have, you know, uh, instead of uh, stretching $20 for two weeks, I, I would have uh, possibly had more to deal with. What do you um, think you would have made, name, image, and likeness, your freshman year? Oh, man. You know, I, I think – but the player I was as a freshman in today's environment with Duke and the, and the hype and the social media, I, I'd say a, at a minimum, and I'm, I'm going to be real conservative, I'd say six figures. Okay. That, you know, and, what would Leitner have gotten? Oh, yeah, Leitner. Look, let me tell you something. Leitner was so big. I mean, it was like I was the bass player for, <laughs> you, know, for uh, you know, a pop star. I mean, Leitner was larger than life. Look, Leitner was one of People Magazine's 50 most beautiful people his senior year. Uh, I mean, you, 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 you know, I mean, come on now. The trash talking both ways with that was, was unreal. But Leitner was larger than life, was, was certainly a celebrity on campus. Uh, everyone loved him. Uh, sometimes we hated him. But uh, he was certainly uh, a star, and he would have, yeah, seven figures, maybe eight figures. I mean, he was that big. I mean, Dad, Dad he had Stephen King. Like, Stephen King which is kind of odd, but Stephen King would come down to Durham and hang out with Christian Leitner. Wait, so the writer Stephen King yes. would hang out with Leitner? I mean, one day I remember going over to his apartment on an off day, and, I, and, I, and like Stephen King is in his, like, <laughs> in his living room, you know? And this is like early his senior year. And so, I mean, like, like that doesn't happen, you know? And uh, didn't happen much back then and, and doesn't happen now. But, but you know, I, he was um, – you know, quite a player, delivered when it mattered most, and certainly was, was big time back in the day. Maybe, Would have made a lot of money. Maybe Stephen King was getting inspiration for somebody, a, <laughs> a, a bad guy in his book. Like, let me get somebody who's really feared and hated. Hey, Christian, can I come down and talk to you for a little while? You know, hey, hey, no comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> He's Grant Hill joining us, uh, seven-time NBA All-Star, two-time NCAA champ at Duke. How would you cover Steph Curry? Wow. Uh, you know, sometimes the best defense is good offense. And uh, I, I think, you know, wear him out on the other end, try to pick up two fouls. Uh, but, you know, how he has played uh, this year, you know, after, you know, being hurt two years ago, coming back, having a fantastic season, and now uh, his play MVP discussion, what he did last night to my Atlanta Hawks, I mean, just, it, it was legendary and uh, painful as a Hawk uh, fan and owner to watch, but just beautiful in terms of his game. Back to that 2015-2016 form uh, that we saw. You know, I thought he really took, uh, really sacrificed his game uh, for Kevin Durant, and, and rightfully so. Kevin Durant, a great player, new environment. I think Steph Curry, people don't appreciate how he went out of his way I believe, to make Durant feel comfortable. And, and, and then he got hurt once Durant left. Uh, but he's back to that sort of pre-Durant 2015 form. And, you know, Golden State, fun and exciting to watch. And, look, we all were saying in the preseason, if they can just hold it together in the Western Conference until Clay comes back, wow, this team would be scary. But you know what? This is scary right now. Yeah, I know. And it, it, it's, 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 you know, it's unimaginable to think, what they'll be once they get Clay Thompson back to form. 
But, you know, when you see, and J.J. Redick was as pure a college shooter as I've ever seen. He was a wonderful, you know, he made shots and the net didn't move. But is anybody compared to Steph Curry that you remember that as far as that good a shooter? You know, I had the good fortune of playing with Steve Nash in Phoenix. At the time, I thought Steve Nash was the best shooting point guard in the history of the NBA. Historically, was a 50, was a 50, 40, 90 guy, 50% from the field, 40% from the three-point line, 90% from the free throw line. Uh, I, 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 at the time, we had not seen a point guard who shot the ball as well as Steve. Now, he was also a great passer and was at times a reluctant shooter. Uh, but Steph has just taken it to a whole nother level with his shooting, with his range, uh, with the volume of shots that he takes, really has, you know, changed the game. You know, it's been a transformational guy. I think of, you know, you think of, you know, got Lou Alcindor way back in the day and how he changed the game and widened the lane, outlawed the dunk. You think of Michael Jordan uh, during his heyday. Uh, influence and how he changed the game also off the court culturally. Uh, but then Steph Curry, just like kind of goofy, silly looking, you know, looks like a kid out there uh, has become the most dangerous player in the NBA, but also has really transformed and embraced and uh, ushered in this new era of shooting from long range, but no one can replicate or duplicate what he's done. And I'm not sure we'll see a guy like him for, for quite some time. How concerned would you be if you're a Laker fan right now? LeBron's out for a month, the abdominal strain. Russell Westbrook doesn't seem like the right fit there. It's early, but is this going to be the same pattern that we see even when LeBron comes back? You know, I I called that game last night. The Lakers played against Charlotte, and, um, you know, they they escaped with a win, the Lakers there, in in overtime. And it, it shouldn't have come to that. Uh, This team is still trying to figure itself out, as you said. Um, You know, at times it looks a little disjointed. You know, the pieces you question, do they all fit? Now, in fairness, you have to get LeBron back and Trevor Ariza and Taylor Horton Tucker and uh, an assortment of Kendrick Nunn. So it's hard to fully evaluate this team and this roster uh, right now. But, you know, one, the abdominal strain is something that LeBron has to be very, very careful with. That's something that can linger for an entire season if you're not, you know, not smart about how you treat it. Uh, but this team, you know, it's just, it's, it's a big question mark, you know, and the expectation in LA, expectation with any LeBron James team is to win a championship. But I'm not in love with this roster. You know, I'm not in love with the pieces. Uh, and how they fit. We still have time to figure it out. I will say, though, I'll give credit, and i got to give credit to him and how he played last night and how he's been all season. The one consistent theme has been Carmelo. Yeah. Carmelo Anthony has really embraced this off-the-bench six-man role, uh, really shooting the ball efficiently from the field, had, I think, 29 points last night, six three-pointers made. So he's been the one sort of uh, shining you know, bright spot for the team here. But I, I, I'm not sure. I, I really, you know, you know, the role players, the wing guys, the shooters, you know, the, the ingredients necessary, I think, to have success with LeBron. I'm not a big, big fan of this roster. And in the Western Conference, 
you know, you get behind too far, it's a lot to make up for. They don't want to be in the spot they were in last year playing in the play-in play game, yeah. but they very well could find themselves right back there at the end of the season. I know you're taking part in uh, a new initiative, uh, Start Strong. Uh, tell the audience what that's about. Yeah, no, thank you, Dan. And, uh, you know, I partnered with uh, Dendrion Pharmaceuticals uh, to have a Start Strong campaign for uh, prostate cancer patients. And so, you know, what's interesting, prostate cancer, uh, you know, hits all men, but disproportionately impacts African-American men. African-American men are twice as likely to be diagnosed and two and a half times more likely to die uh, from prostate cancer. So raising the awareness, uh, getting people of color in the African-American community uh, to go, to get checked, to get screened, uh, if you find it early, it can be treated and 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 and, and cure, and you can have a, a, you know go on with a successful life. Uh, but typically, in our community, in the African American community, we don't like to go to the doctor. We don't like to go uh, and get checked, and oftentimes uh, we find out and it's too late. So this Start Strong campaign is really just about game planning. You know, preparing as you would as a team in the NBA or the NFL. Uh, with your health, taking ownership. As you know, Dan, I've had loads of injury issues throughout my career, but I understand the importance of taking ownership, taking control, uh, and together with Dendrion Pharmaceuticals, we're encouraging all men, but particularly African-American men, uh, to do the same. So you can go to a great website. There's so much information at www.startstrong.us. And uh, I just appreciate, Dan, you giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Always great to see you, buddy. Thank you for joining us, Grant. All right. Thank you, Dan.